0: you're listening to cooper talk welcome to cooper talk i'm your host steve cooper and remember i'm only as hip as my guests and i have to tell you something people i went to a concert the other night i went to see joe jackson Big fan. And now I'm 55, and I was the youngest person in the audience. And I've noticed this, that when you go to a crowd, when there's older people, I go to a lot of shows. I have what you call, I know how to deal with a crowd. But it was amazing how these people have no crowd etiquette, because the show lets out, and they are they don't know what they're doing. They're stopping, and they don't walk like two by two when you're trying to go through a crowd. They walk by four. They're walking real slow. They're looking around. And it's like people just look for the exit sign. It's a small theater. It's easy to get out. Anyway, so look it up on YouTube, how to deal with a crowd, people. And my guest today, I don't think he deals with crowds because he's usually the gentleman in front of the crowd, and I'm sure he's a legendary drummer, so I'm sure when he goes to a show, he's probably backstage. And my guest is Simon Phillips. How you doing, Simon?
1: Hello. Good morning. I'm doing great. Thank you.
0: Now, do you, at this point of your career, because you've played with everybody and you've had an amazing career. Do you still go to concerts? And when you do go to a concert, do you actually sit in the audience, or are you like backstage? Or because I'm sure the drummers want you to come back and meet them.
1: Um, it depends. Well, it depends if I know the band and whether I've got guest tickets. Uh, but if I don't, <laughs> then I'm 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 a punter. I just go through the front door. You know. <laughs> now, do you,
0: do you like watching live music? Even though it's you're you know you're a musician, does it get tired when you watch other bands?
1: Um, you know, it, well, it really depends on on who's playing. It really depends on the sound. Uh, I mean, for example, I went to see. Well, this is a few years ago now, maybe four years ago. <clears throat> I went to see um, uh, Dave Gilmore um, when he was on his tour. Phil Manzanero was on the was in the band, and of course, I know the sound engineer very well, Colin. Um, it was a theatre somewhere in Chicago and I had tickets, even though I was, I was backstage in, in the dressing rooms, I had tickets for out front. So I grabbed my my seat and uh, it was, the, the sound was just stunning. I mean, absolutely stunning. Um, so, and of course I would, I would, I would expect nothing less from uh, Colin Northfield, but then what I did was I went up and sat next to him. Uh, so I could actually watch him mix because most of the time he was mixing me with Toto, I was on stage playing, so I never got to see it. Um, and, of course, it was wonderful to be there at the, at the, at the uh, console, uh, front of house console, listening to the uh, the band. But, you know, if it sounds great, then I absolutely love being out front. Um, if it doesn't sound so good, then I might just kind of get up, excuse myself, and get backstage and sit on the side. <laughs> um, but the amazing thing is, on the side, you actually can't hear very much. Um, you hear the back of the PA, which is actually kind of annoying. So it's a different experience, and it's not really a concert experience when you're sitting on the side. It really isn't. You know, it may sound, oh, that must be so cool, but actually, it's it's kind of disappointing. Believe it or not, uh, <laughs> but you just kind of look at it in a different way because that's a it's a sound I'm used to hearing. Is uh, you know, listening to bands from the side.
0: Now, I was reading that. You were professional, playing professionally when you were 12. What time did you, mm-hmm. when, when did you start to pick up the drums? I know your father was a musician, but what made you pick up, what did, made you choose the drums and how old were you when you first actually started playing them?
1: Well, I was three years old and my dad used to rehearse his band in the house. Um, so, For the first three years of my life, I mean, I guess I'm just learning how to breathe, you know. Um, So it didn't really make a lot of sense what was going on. And the funny thing is the the, the most elegant instruments that I saw were the brass instruments, the, the baritone sax, the tenor sax. I mean, you know, to a little kid, that beautiful, you know, brass finish, lacquered finish is just absolutely gorgeous, you know, and the sound that they make, you know. Um, it didn't really, nothing really took until one day he had the band instead of trying to squeeze them into a little, uh, kind of, we used to call it the studio, but it was really like a conservatory. He said, this is ridiculous. I'm going to put everybody in the living room. So the first instrument I bumped into when I walked in at about three and a half years old was a beautiful Ludwig drum kit played by a brand new drummer. That it was his first rehearsal, who happened to be an excellent drummer, very young. His name was Dave Rogers. The sound of that Ludwig 400 supraphonic chrome snare drum and that hi-hat going up and down and that speaking pedal going backwards and forwards, that was it. I was done. It's exactly it, what I was going to do for the rest of my life.
0: So it just captivated you. When did you sit there? I mean, at, at three, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think when I was three, I don't think we speak that well. I don't even remember, but when did you sit there and you, you, it was captivated. When did you sit there and say, when did you get behind the set for your first time?
1: Oh, much later, much later. Well, all I did, I was sent to bed and I could hear the band through, you know, through the walls in the house. And, um, I just grabbed a couple of books and was just using my hands on the books. And then the very next morning, I remember this so clearly, the next morning I went outside to the dustbins, grabbed a couple of pieces of wooden kindling, and just started playing the dustbins. That's how it started. My mom got me a snare drum and a cymbal um, a little bit later. Um, and I didn't really get a full kit until I was actually eight years old. But um, I did do a recording session or I sat in with the band on a recording session when I was six years old. Um, I still have that recording. and It's absolutely hilarious. But really, all it was, was my, my father wanted to find out very, something very simple. Does this kid have any kind of talent playing music? You know, his thing was never playing an instrument, playing drums. His thing was, can he play music? Can he play a song? Can he learn a song, learn the arrangement and play it with a band? And so, even though I was only playing snare drum and cymbal and the other drummer was playing kick and hat, because I probably couldn't reach them in those days, you know, <laughs> um, and I have the recordings and it's really funny because I start with the band and I stop with the band. And I think that's all he wanted to find out. I could play a few figures and, uh, it, you know, that, that was it. And it was just a slow progress between, I guess the ages of four to eight, where I sat in with his band on a gig, New Z gig, and played a few songs.
0: You must, and
1: have, that, that was it. You
0: must have been really a fast learner, because if you started playing professionally with him at 12, that's just amazing. And it's your father who, as you said, wanted you to sit there and learn music, so he must have said, you've arrived to have you play with him.
1: It was, you know... <laughs> And it's so funny when I my son is now 12 (laughs) and uh, and he's quite tall. He's much taller than I was at 12. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking I was riding in in a bus with with nine other musicians who the youngest person was probably 30 going up to 65. And I was the drummer of this band. Sometimes I think, did that really happen? But it did. I, I was there. The reason it happened is because his music was quite old-fashioned. It was, I would say, if you, if you had to date it, it would be like 1930s swing. Um, it wasn't a big band. It was a medium-sized band. And he called it Dixieland dance music. Um, but the word Dixieland can be confusing because you, you tend to think of a bit of a free-for-all with uh a trombone, a trumpet, and a clarinet. Um, but that's not really what his music was much more arranged. Everything was written out, and uh, it was more arranged like a big band, but it was a medium-sized band. The groove to play w- w- with that, that kind of music is the typical groove that, that Gene Krupa used to play with Benny Goodman. It's all fours. It's quarter notes. Now, in those days, in 1969, drummers in England they didn't want to play that. They wanted to play bebop. They wanted to copy Elvin Jones and Art Blakey. So he had a terrible time finding a drummer who could play groove, literally just that 1930s groove. Um, and he came home from a gig absolutely livid. And because of the drummer, again, was you know playing like Elvin Jones at a dance gig, which doesn't work. Um, and my mother said, you have a damn good drummer here in this house. And my dad said, he's way too young. And my mom said, I don't think so. And (laughs) that was it. I was booked for the next gig. (laughs) Um, As raw and inexperienced and dynamics, I'm playing as loud as I can. (laughs) Every beat was, I mean, the rest of the band, they must have just gone, oh no. But the point was, his thing was, this is the groove. I grew up playing that music. So I knew how to play that groove. Even at 12, I knew how to play a straight-four swing groove, and I could read music at that age, which was because he was, you know, that was one thing he really instilled in me. And, you know, those four years with the band, I matured as a drummer, learned about dynamics, <laughs> learned about feathering the bass drum. It was amazing, you know? So that, that's why I, I ended up in that position. So it was a very unusual um and an amazing position to be in you know
0: because i'm saying yeah i mean it must have made you so much better because you were out there doing it and you're doing it with people who are professionals i mean you know given you yeah. know, you can go to a school and be in a marching band or this but you're still playing with what your other the other people around you are to level. I mean, where I went to high school, yeah. they had a great marching band. My brother played the drums in it. But if you went to a lousier yeah. school, you wouldn't learn anything as a musician. So you must have been, when you were 16, when you left the band, you must have had the experience and the, and the balls of like a 24-year-old.
1: Well, I had the experience, yeah. Also, I started even doing his recording sessions. When I was, how old was I when I first, I think I was 13 when I did my first BBC session. And now that is a, it's a radio broadcast, so that's 12 songs in three hours. That's how you used to have to do it. You'd only do one take, maybe two takes of one of the songs, and that was it. You have a rehearsal, tea break, and then you, you do the uh, uh, the recording. And this was all recorded onto full track mono back in those days and for the BBC, um there's no punches there's no, you know no punching in no no fixes no edits it's it it that's it you know um so that was a great experience and uh by the time um you know the band well he he died very suddenly in in 1973 and suddenly I was left holding this band going what am i going to do i really wasn't into the music then and also i just felt without him it would never sound the same so i, I just said that's it band is over and I got a job in a in a hi fi store. <laughs> um, school was was part time by that by that time anyway.
0: Now you got. And,
1: a job, go yeah.
0: No, you got a job at a hi fi store. You said, and but were you you have, must have been hungry to start drumming again because, as you said, school is part time. Where most of us are going to school, you're out playing at, when you were younger. You you probably had to miss that very quickly.
1: Oh, I, I missed a lot of. Uh, uh, a lot of school events. Um, I missed, yeah, yeah. And of course, in those days in England, we we had no music in school. I mean, it was very very limited, um, and there was nobody else to play with. There was nobody my age who could play. It was uh, um, so. I started doing some casual dates, which were left over from uh, ba- uh, band members of my dad's band, um, and uh, and then. You know, I got a very lucky break. Uh, I got an audition for Jesus Christ Superstar, which was, a, um, you know, one of the main shows in the West End in London at that time. Um, and was, you know, I did the, the, uh, the audition and I was lucky enough to get the kick. And that's kind of really where it really all started.
0: Because you were in, you were around people... Your age somewhat, probably, and you were probably had more skill than some of them. How did that get you started on your path to becoming, you know, a session musician and stuff like that?
1: Well, I was still, I was still 16, and most of the uh, people in, in the cast were early 20s to, to 30s, but the band was still much older. They were, they were they were they were more you know session session guys so they were probably in their 30s at that time but what happened in those days um we didn't have drum machines we didn't have sequencers so in order to get a record deal for an artist you had to go into what was called a demo studio and in those days a demo studio was probably a four track or an eight track studio depending what you could afford and uh, so one guy that was in the uh, cast, um, he decided he wanted to do a session. He'd asked me if I would do it. And I go, yeah, absolutely. And then from there, that's how I started meeting other session musicians. And it's word of mouth. And in those days, we had so many sessions because, like I say, there was no sequencer. There were no drum machines. All you had was an acoustic guitar or electric guitar. And, and you had to get a bunch of musicians to play um it was an amazing experience and you do one and then the bass player he goes wow you know hey you, you play great let's uh do you want to do a session on tuesday i've got this little thing and and it just it cascades from there that's how it used to work
0: now who who was like what was your would you say to you was that first session of a big album you did was it when you worked with Eno, or was it when you did uh with Judas Priest, I mean, what would you? What did you feel as a as a youngster? And you know, when you worked with those guys, you were around twenty, probably. What did you feel was your first bigger break that really made you sit there and go, "I'm on my way."
1: Um, you know, it was, it was all in stages. So, okay, so 1973 uh, was when I was doing Superstar and started doing sessions. Nothing really, uh, you know, it was all pretty unknown, pretty small stuff. 1974, I started doing sessions with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, wow. um, he was working on a couple of different projects. One was, ooh, I'm going to try and remember here. Uh, the soundtrack to a John Voight out, uh, film. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the movie now. It's a wonderful movie. Uh, the Odessa File. Okay. That's what it's called. So I started doing film dates and, uh, because Andrew came to see the show and saw me playing and then booked me straight away for these, these sessions, which was a wonderful experience. That way I started meeting more seasoned session musicians, guys that did, you know, the A sessions as it were. Um, and in 1974, I did a couple of albums. I played on a Dana Gillespie album who's an English blues singer, who was in Superstar, and that was the first time I worked with uh, like Phil Brown, who's a very famous engineer at Island Studios, uh, John Porter, who used to be in Roxy Music, um, and this was when it really started happening. I played on a Phil Manzanera album in the, in early 1975. Um, I also joined my first band, Chopin, which was with some you know great musicians, so I would say that's really when I started really doing doing records, which I knew were going to come out, and not sit on some R guy's desk. Do you see what I mean?
0: Right. So now you're doing this. Now, do you feel that you're still growing as a drummer when you're doing this, because you're playing with a different level now, or do you feel that you were, you know, you were always a really strong drummer, so it was easy for you to jump in?
1: Um, every playing every uh every playing experience is a learning experience and it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this um i mean obviously i have the the, the 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 you know vast experience of making records now uh both from playing on them arranging them and even as a producer and an engineer so i do approach it in a very different way i don't really approach it as a as a drummer i approach it more as a listener Um, but even still, you know, I'll go out, I'll listen to the song, I'll do a quick chart and I'll go out and I'll play through it. And I'm kind of just discovering the song and what it can take. Um, it's always a a method of playing the song, you know, um, let the song dictate what it needs. Rather, I'm going to put my stamp on this song and sound like me, you know, that is the wrong way to approach. Uh, It'll always sound like you uh, the thing is as a young player you don't you haven't really discovered that yet you know and you're still looking for your your signature your style but I'll come in I'll listen and I'll go hmm and sometimes I can get it in a take and it just it just it just happened I might just go back and punch one section and it's done other times I'll just listen I'll go I think this is the right approach and it might take a little while I, I might be thinking. What am, What does this need? What am I doing here? Why am I? Or why is this a little more difficult? And it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, it is always a learning experience. And um, from every record I do, it doesn't matter what the music is like. It's I learn something from it. Last week I did a, a I played some uh, tracks for the new Michael Schenker album. I hadn't played heavy metal for years, and most of these tracks were double bass drum. 16th notes for like four or five minutes it was exhausting (laughs) 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 and i i really actually before the sessions i you know i heard some of the songs i was actually to be quite honest i was a little worried i was a little concerned in that i don't know if i can keep that up anymore you know double bass drum that long um real straight playing quite metal there's no, no subtlety um and I was, I was a little bit actually apprehensive about doing this. I thought, oh, I hope this is not going to be like play for a minute, stop, and then punch in, you know, because that, that would be really embarrassing. Um, as it happened, it went really well. It was, it was great. I, I just managed to still have that technique to, to be able to do it. Mind you, five minutes of that, I, you know, get to the end of the song and I'm sitting on the stool panting. <laughs> you, know, like but, you know,
0: you, you played it the shanker in, in 80 on his album
1: yeah i played on the first michael Schenker album in, in 1980 yeah
0: now now when you're playing and you're you're a session musician were there opportunities for you to go out on the road or were you happy doing the sessions just because you're getting to stay at home you're getting paid you're working with probably your choice of artists because people are coming to you did you want to go on the road in the early days or
1: oh absolutely i couldn't wait to get out on the road um I remember doing sessions in, in like 1976 and 77 and talking to other musicians. They said, Oh, we just got back from, you know, uh, US tour with Neil Sadaka or, um, or another band or whatever. And I'm like, What's it like? I want to go, you know. <laughs> and, and I was just doing sessions from, which again is very unusual. Most kids, they, they join a band, they go out on the road, they get all that experience and then they start studio work and then they, they end up in uh, doing sessions I did it totally the other way around I started off being a session guy and I mean some of the scenarios were hilarious I mean I would walk in uh, a, a film day full orchestra full rhythm section, brass section and people are looking at me what's this kid doing walking in the, in this uh, big room like, like uh, Abbey Road or, or Olympic Studios Studio One with long hair, beads, and he smells of patchouli oil, and he looks stoned. Um, What is he doing? Why is he going to the drum kit? (laughs) You know, he he must be the drummer's son or something. And then I'd sit down and, you know, open up the music and and, uh, count in, and off we go. It was, I mean, it was really funny. Now, now,
0: Um, who was the first band you went (laughs) on the road with?
1: Well, I was on the road in England with this band, Chopin. That was back in 1974. I also went out on the road with Dana Gillespie, and that was my first trip to New York. We did some shows at a place called Reno Sweeney's. I don't know if anybody who lives in New York remembers that place. Um, It's actually where I first saw the Manhattan Transfer, when I don't think anybody knew who they were, 1974. Um, I don't think they even had a drum license, or they weren't supposed to have a full drum set in that place. Um, we played uh Bijou Cafe in Philadelphia.
0: Okay.
1: Um so that was my first trip to the States. Uh and then really uh with I didn't do too much after that. I, I did um we did eight oh one, well we only did three shows, that band. Uh the next artist would have been Jack Bruce. I joined him in nineteen seventy six. We did an album called House Tricks, and in nineteen seventy seven we went on the road. And that was really, I would say, my first you know more big time European tour and U.S. tour in 1977.
0: So you you know you're out there. You're, you're now you're finally getting on the road. You're still doing sessions, and I know you eventually uh, played in the American Reunion tour for the Who. How did you get to that level where you met those guys? Through those in, the, in like the in the eighties, who were some of the people that you were playing with in the studios? You were playing with really big names, right?
1: Uh, I was then, yeah. I mean, basically by the end of the seventies. Uh, well, I mean, uh, Pete Townsend, for example. So I did a record in 1976 with a folk guitarist called Gordon Giltra. Um, he actually had a hit. He had a, uh, uh, it was on Top of the Pops. I didn't play on Top of the Pops, but the but the drummer that was there to to my track. I was the guy that played on it. And I think that was in around 78. And then... In early 79, I got a call from Pete Townsend. And I was like, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He said, uh, yeah, I'd like you to play on my new album. Uh, I really like that track you did with Gordon Giltrap. Because he's very aware. You know, he used to listen to a lot of pop music. He was always aware of what was going on. And if there's anything that caught his ear, he'd follow it up. He figured out that the drummer on Top of the Pops was not me. Uh, he figured out that I was the, the guy on the record and tracked me down and that was it. Now, by that time, I'd been playing with Jeff Beck. So I think he might have had a, some sort of connection there, got my number. All of a sudden, I'm at a session in 1979 for Empty Glass. His first, you know, one of his, not his first, right. but one of his solo albums. And that was amazing. And, you know, when I first met him, he was absolutely charming. I mean, he came up, introduced himself and, you know said i really love that record uh you played on with with gordon giltramp that's fantastic and uh and of course the stuff you do with jeff beck and i was like dan wow <laughs> <laughs> he knows you know and um and those sessions were absolutely amazing his songs i mean they play themselves they literally play themselves i didn't have to really think very much i just play you know um and in fact, it's funny. I have a, a, an iPhone, and in my car, I have it set to shuffle. So I never know what's coming on. It's really fascinating. Sometimes these old albums come on because you know they're all in my iTunes. Um, and I, I heard one of these tracks from Empty Glass the, the the other day in, the, in in my car, and I was thinking, God, I remember that session so well, and I just remember the song played me. You know, I didn't play the song; it just played me. It was amazing. That's the that's the art of great songwriting.
0: It just it must be amazing because yeah, that is a great that's a great album, and it must be so cool as I said for you. As you said, you have a month shuffle when you drive and you hear this, you hear that, and you remember the session. I mean, that's something that a lot of us listen to music and it takes us back to a certain time or an event. But for you, when yeah. you listen to these songs, it not only takes you back to a certain time and event, it takes you back to you recording the damn thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I I can't remember everything. I mean, there's a lot of, (laughs) a lot of studios there. I can't remember the names of them. Uh, but there are certain albums I remember. I remember the room distinctly. I don't always remember who else was on the record. That, that's sometimes tricky. And you know how, you know how memory is. Once you get to 60, things do, um, get mixed up. I mean, when I was out on, on, on tour with The Who, there are legendary Keith Moon stories. And each one of them, Pete, John, and Roger, will at some point um, tell one of the stories. The funny thing is, though, if they tell the story, the same story, it's in three different perspectives. Okay. And there's three totally different stories. It's absolutely hilarious. That's what memory does.
0: Now, how did they approach you to tour with the Who, and what was that like, because you're playing with the Who?
1: Um, well, I was doing a record with Pete at the time called The Iron Man. Um, there was 1987, and I was kind of co-producing, actually. Um, I was working on my own, actually, in a, in a room, in a studio, uh, with a thin clavier. um because I had got, quite, by that time, I'd gone into producing and engineering. Um, uh, and that was actually thanks to uh, a gentleman called Mike Oldfield. I did a record with him in 1983 called Crises. And he instantly picked up that I was way into, you know, miking techniques and engineering, getting sounds. And and that's why he asked me to to co-produce and co-engineer. And he taught me so much. I mean, I really learned my engineering skills uh, initially from Mike Oldfield. So... This album with Pete, we, we had about three different people working on different songs, and I uh, worked on his synclavier and figured out how to, you know, I was taught how to use it and everything, and, and one day he comes in and he said, how would you feel like playing with a the who then? <laughs> <laughs> I went, um, well, what's up with Kenny? Uh, you know, I said, I mean, obviously that that would be amazing, but, um, you know, I thought Kenny Jones was the, the drummer, and I wouldn't want to you know he said oh don't worry about that um so i think what had happened is uh you know whatever had happened with Kenny and the band they didn't want to uh, continue um and that was in 87 that was you know uh 2 years before we actually went out um that's how it happened and he uh he told the other guys he said right i've got a drama and uh, and that was it
0: <laughs> now when you go out on the road with them though i mean you you know as someone who loves music, like I do, and I've seen The Who, and I've you know, listened to The Who forever, this the magnitude of The Who, it's like they're one of the top five bands ever. What is that like? Do you feel the love of the crowd when you're behind the drums and you're probably playing packed houses? Can you just tell the adoration of the fans just by like an energy when you're up there?
1: Well, and, and and especially that tour. The 1989 tour was the 25th anniversary. It was probably the largest tour they ever played. Um, I mean, they certainly don't, they haven't played that big a place for years. Um, every gig we did was a stadium. You know, it was like four nights at Giants, which is 62 or 65,000. Two nights at, uh, Foxborough in, in, uh, outside of Boston, which was like 80, something thousand I mean it was ridiculous you know um, it's just stunning I mean it, 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 I mean like with all venues when you're on tour with a band you get used to what you're doing because you have to adapt It's the sound is can be very confusing when you're on a big you know in, in such a big place like that with the delay towers and all the people um, and you've got to imagine the noise that 60,000 pe- people make I mean, it's hard to hear the band. It really is. Uh, and you're in the band. You're on stage. <laughs> um, but you get used to it. And so it becomes the norm. Your brain adapts to that sound and it ends up sounding really good, you know? Um, the problem is, is when you go inside, we had to go indoors. I think it was in, um, Detroit. I think we had to play an indoor venue there, big one. And Everybody hated it in the band because the sound was cacophonous. Because we were used to the sound outside and kind of reflecting off the beaches but disappearing into the sky. Right. Now suddenly you've got a roof over the building. I mean, we could, it was so hard to play because it was just so confusing. Um, now, if we had continued the rest of the tour in theatre of uh, not theatres, uh, uh, venues like that. We would adapt, and we would get used to it. Our brain is amazing at then making sense out of cacophony. Isn't that incredible?
0: It is, I can imagine, yeah. I mean, it's because it's a different sound. I mean, I I used to do stand-up comedy, and in Philadelphia, there was two clubs, and one had a low ceiling, and when you did it, it was great, because it was comedy, the laughters would stay, but when you would do the other one that had a high ceiling, it stunk, because for us, the laughter would go away and you think it, it wasn't the same it worked in reverse for what you guys were going through
1: yes yeah it it, it, re- it really is interesting and it's the same when we play clubs you know you, you do a club tour which is most of us do now you know we're not we, we don't do these big shows anymore um i mean bands like the who are playing you know they play theaters uh or they play some couple of larger places but they're not as large as they used to be you know so a lot of us are playing clubs these days and um you have to get used to that <laughs> because it sounds pretty short and dead and you know um yeah it, it, it but but it is amazing how you can get used to it
0: well okay so you know you were playing and you've always played with a lot of different people and then in 92 i believe Toto came along how did that happen and and did you know it would be a long term gig because you know you've been working for a ton of people cuz you're in demand and it seems like as someone who is didn't really have a, a sit there and know that you're always going to have a gig, which was good for you. Yeah. But when Toto came along, how did how did you end up with Toto? Was it because of your reputation and how good you were that they came to get you? And did and how did you make it become a long term gig?
1: Um, well, of course, initially I had no idea that I would end up in the band stay stay with the band for twenty one years. Uh, I had actually given up thoughts of being in a band. Um, I was concentrating more on production, uh, and engineering. And that's kind of what I wanted to get into more because I was actually really enjoying. It. I found that a lot more creative. Um, I was planning in all of, um, from about 1991 to leave England and, and come and live in the States because I kind of, exhausted everything in England at that time, especially the way the music was going. There was really not a lot left for me uh, personally, you know, there. And I thought this would be a really good time to to go to the States because I've always wanted to, to play with, you know, great American musicians. And uh, I thought now's the time. So I was all set to, to uh, I got all my, my visa. I incorporated my uh, corporation and was, you know, ready to kind of do the move. And then all of a sudden, that summer, um, you know, Jeff uh, passed away. Um, a week later, I was just about to drive into London because uh, I used to live outside of London to do a record with a band called Big Country. And little did I know that would be the last album I ever did in in England as a as a resident. Um, and it was Steve Lukather, and um, I just thought he. Cause, you know, I knew Steve not well, but, but we had played together and, you know, we'd met a few times and he called me and, and I thought he just wanted to just talk, you know, just, just to talk about Jeff and, or, you know, but he said, look, I'll, I'll come straight to the point. We've got this huge tour booked. We've got about 40 people on the payroll. We've got a brand new album. We got to do this tour. He said, and, uh, we want to know if you consider doing it because otherwise, you know, we're not sure what we're going to do. And I went. Wow, that was the last band I ever thought of playing in. Um, it was just, you know, he just never thought of that. And I said, Yikes, okay. Uh, and we actually got down to it. I said, well, What are we talking? When are we talking? He said, Well, come over as soon as you can. We need to rehearse. And I said, Well, I can't do that. I'm, I've got I've got this, I've got that, I've got that. I've got to get out of all these other things which I'd be booked for. Um, I said, you know what, can I think about it? And I'll call you in a couple of days. He said, yeah, but don't take too long. That's Luke, you know, he's very abrupt and very, you know, straight ahead. Um, and I called a bunch of people, uh, basically saying, look, I know you booked me for this record in, in October or whatever, but I, I'm i afraid I'm not going to be able to do it because, you know, what's happened with, with Toto and Jeff Picaro, And they were all great. They said, Totally understand. You, off, you, you go off and do it. You know, my blessing. No problem. And then I called him back and I said, well, I can do it, but I can only get over there at the beginning of, uh, gosh, when was it? Beginning of August, I think, or September. I, I, I actually forget. Um, I've only got three weeks to, to give you for rehearsals. And he said, that's not long. You know, we've never done this before. We've, we've always, uh, Jeff. And uh, we said, but hey, that's what it is. That's what it is. And that's how it started.
0: And it started, so you go on that tour and, you know, and as you said, you're you're a professional and you're a seasons pro. Now, when the tour was over, were they making, giving you signs that they're saying, hey, you know what, hang out with us. We want you to be in the drummer now. Or how did you end up, as I say, it's just amazing from a tour, it ends up in this long career what yeah. <laughs> what was when they brought you aboard? They, was it a slow process or did they know? Well, they probably knew because they took you on tour that you were the man, but they also knew that you are in demand. So it must have been, you know, hard for them at first. But how did you know when you started to sit there and say, I am going to be with these guys for a well,
1: long time? a couple of things. The music business was changing. The session scene was changing. And one of the issues with, with Toto during the uh, 80s was... As much as they wanted to have a band and they loved it, they also played on a lot of records, and especially Jeff. And Jeff sometimes would have preferred to, you know, stay in LA and play on records than go on tour. And I think this was always a bit of a clash uh between him and, and um you know, some of the other members of the band. In nineteen ninety two the session scene was disintegrating and you know the music business was changing so for all of us it was sign- signaling the end of that golden era of you know living in london living in la living in new york and going to the studio every day um it it that, that was going to we knew that it was basically running out that type of uh, um livelihood so suddenly the the the, the in terms of just having a gig uh, being in a band especially a band like Toto who you know were doing quite well around, around the world not, not in the States I have to say uh, basic almost unknown in the States um, uh, but but Europe and, and, and the Far East we you know the band was doing well um, it became more apparent that that was going to be a much more important gig to have because we could kind of see the day where we're not going to be doing sessions anymore so that was one aspect of it. About two weeks into the tour, I remember this very clearly. I think we were playing Hamburg and I was walking, we'd play the gig. I was walking into the hotel right on the, uh, the boat. Uh, oh, what's the, the name of the, the big sea there, the big lake in Hamburg? Can't remember it. Anyway, um, we were walking up the steps into the lobby of the hotel and Mike said to me, um, you want to join the band? And I looked at him and I said, really? And he said, yeah, I think this is going to be great. I mean, you know, well, it's it's working out great. And this is like just two weeks into the, you know, he'd ever done without his brother on drums. Um, and then, you know, as this went, as the tour went on, I think David Page was much more reserved about it. He didn't want to say too much, but I think Luke was like, hey, come on, we got to do more playing. We've got you know, he, And, um, yeah, I mean, by the time we got to the, the end of the tour and we got back to, to, uh, LA, it was like, well, I think we're going to carry on. Would you like to be part of the band? And then I had a meeting with the management and I thought to myself, you know, maybe this is the band I've been waiting for, um, because of the, the musician, the musicianship and, um, I hadn't done a record with them yet, so... You know, there was all that side of it, but I just thought this could be quite good. And uh, so I said yes, and we drew up a contract and I was made a a shareholder and a member of the band.
0: So you did that. Now, I also know besides playing and you had mentioned earlier about your producing and engineering, what made you go into that? And I know I know you did a lot of that on the Darwin album, too, which we're going to talk about. But what made you decide that you wanted to do producing and engineering? Was it just something that you had played a lot? You had been in so many sessions that you really knew you could do it well?
1: um actually it goes back a lot a lot further than than that my mother was an amateur recording archivist she um used to i mean she always had a tape machine from as far back as i can remember and i learned how to spool up a a reel on a tape machine when i was about four years old and she always told me don't press the red button because every all the sound will disappear i went oh okay (laughs) also i was dragged in and out of studios from very, very young. So I knew what a studio environment was like. I knew what it meant when the red light was on. Um, it, it was just, I grew up in that 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 thing. So I used to play around with uh, tape machines. You used to have two uh, Reeboks G36 tape machines. Um, and I used to experiment. I, you know, recorded my drum kit, a microphone, and just one to start with. Um, and then I get it, I got a little bit into electronics. I started wiring up hi-fi systems and, you know, so I was always into sound, um, used to buy records based on how they sounded, not what the music was like. Okay. So to me, it was a very big part. It, it, this grew in parallel with my playing. Um, when I did sessions, I watched all those engineers really closely I took a note of what the console was, what the speakers were, what the tape machine was. I learned all the models of every microphone they ever put on my drum kit. I could recognize them. You know, that's a Neumann. That's a U67. It's got a black label on it, a black badge. That means it's a tube mic. You know, the purple mic means it's a, it's a transistor mic. Um, So I was pretty technical when it came to that. No formal education, but... All I wanted to do was get behind a board and engineer. And so that's how the interest in production and engineering came. Um, And I'd worked with some of the best engineers in the world at that time. So it was just, for me, it was a very natural progression.
0: Now, tell me about Darwin. And it's funny because the website, people, the website is Darwin.is. I thought I was on the wrong website at first. I went on there because it's saying you know, it's okay to come into the website, and I was like, did I go to the wrong site? Very cool website. Like, I, was, I thought <laughs> I was, it, is, like, isn't it? Yeah. I, I thought it was, like, going to get a virus, because <laughs> <no, the> said, <laughs> <didn't come> in. <laughs> tell me, uh, yep. tell me about the band, how you found every, how it all came to, um how it all came to fruition, and it's a concept album, which you don't see that a lot anymore, and, you know, and nope. that's what I grew up, you know, we, you know, you talked about you know, how you go for the sound of an album. Well, for us, you know, when we would get good artwork or the the songs went in order, great. It made the album so much better. So tell me about the, tell my listeners and me about this album and how you got the band together and
1: where you want to take it. Well, about probably four years ago now, I got an anonymous email. <laughs> and <laughs> And the email was saying, "I I, but yeah, I love your work, love uh, your production work on these albums, uh, not to mention your playing and blah blah blah." I mean, um, Darwin had really done his homework, and he obviously felt that I had what it was that could help him make a record. Um, the email was full of these very expandable ideas and i thought wow this is an interesting uh concept and uh, uh i mean at that time there was no explanation of the of the concept of the album that that it was that came much later actually but uh this was just purely about would i consider um working with him for a few days on a couple of songs and just seeing how it went um but he had all these ideas and i said well look let's um let's just break it down, let's just maybe pick two or three songs, I'll book some musicians, and let's see what happens. And we met and uh, he came to my studio, Phantom Recordings, um, about three and a half years ago, and we started working on the first couple of songs. Um, and then, and we did that, and it worked, we, we, we worked quite well together. Um, and then, he booked some more time and we started working on some other songs. And just over a period of, let's say, two years, we started working on a more regular basis, a couple of days at a time. And I would work on the the, the music in the meantime when he was uh, busy doing whatever it is he does. <laughs> um, mystery man. Um, and uh, suddenly it was taking shape. And suddenly the concept was taking shape too. It was pretty amazing. Um, and then three years later, when we started getting, well, first of all, it turned him from a single album to a double album. We had 17 songs. Um, and I mean, that's a, that's a big undertaking. You know, try, try mixing 17 songs. It's, it's a lot of work. Right. And, uh, you know, the tracks from being, let's say, you know, maybe 40, audio tracks in pro tools started building up to 70 <laughs> with all these different ideas that he had. Um, I mean, it really was fascinating. Um, and it, it, what I had to do as the producer was kind of, uh, you know, be open to the ideas, but continue to steer the ship in the right direction. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And that you can only do from experience of making records. Um, and that's what we ended up with. Um, I, really, frankly, didn't think it would be this bigger project when we started. Uh, But I think he always did. I think he had a vision, but he was very careful just to, you know, concentrate on one thing at a time and not let the the, the, the vision get bigger than than what we're doing, if you see what I mean. Uh, It was kind of a very smart way of of, um, guiding it, you know, politically guiding it. In 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 the studio, it was it was interesting. So, and what we have is what you hear now.
0: Now it's got a lot of it's. Well, first of all, how did you find the guys to play on the
1: album? Um, well, I, okay, so the, for the first session, I, I I listened to the tunes and I thought, and at this time, I didn't know what his expertise was. You know, and, and I knew he was a guitarist and a piano player, but I didn't know how good he was. So I thought, well, you know, let's uh, um, let's see. I just actually booked a bass player. And I booked my bass player, Ernest Tibbs, who, you know, absolutely love. And uh, I know the groove is going to be great. And he knows exactly what to play. And he's got a great sound. So I thought, this will be the best way to start. And we'll just do it as a trio. And this way, I can really find out where, you know, where the playing level is at. Um, but then as we got more involved... Um, Dharma would say, "Do you know so and so?" I said, "Yeah." And do you know so and so? And he'd be picking, you know, these musicians, or the people that I knew, of course. Um, and he said, "There's only. What, what do you think? Do you think we can get them to play on the record?" And and then I would say, "Well, um, maybe it'd be better to you know do the track with this guy, and then maybe you know overdub this guy." And, that. and that's kind of how it worked, really. We settled on. Uh, we started working with Matt Bissonette, who I'd known for years, but never played together. Um, and, of course, I, I knew that he sang, but I didn't realize how great a singer he was. Um And um, he was just wonderful to work with, so easy to work with, and such a lovely voice, and a uh, great bass player. So he became one of the mainstays in the band, that's for sure. And then um, we had basically lots of guests. I mean, I ended up playing on this record. I played drums percussion and keyboards that's the funny thing um only because uh uh whilst in production mode i knew what i wanted to hear from the keyboards and i just started doing it as really as a demo i said this is what i'm hearing and and darwin loved it so i ended up being a one of the one of the keyboard players on it too (laughs) which is funny now
0: as as, as a as as a producer you know is it a different approach because it's It's a concept album. It's supposed to take place in 2028. And is there something that you have to look at it differently to make it? It all has to string together, else it's not a concept album.
1: You know what I mean? It does, but you still have, uh, remember, it's it's building blocks. You still have to take each song as a song, regardless if it's part of a concept album or or not. Um, So, and I've always had this, this the same kind of uh, work uh, approach to 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 working um, on a record let's treat the song for what it needs this needs this kind of sound this kind of approach it's okay to have um, you know different sounding tracks on a record as long as there's something you can hook together you know it's a very um it's interesting when you're sequencing an album or you're or you're making an album Sometimes I feel and sometimes I felt this with with Toto, actually, um, when we were making records, I felt that the style of music was just too wide for one album and the album lost its direction. Um, I do like records which do have a common thread and sometimes that's sonically, sometimes that's voice, sometimes that's the lineup. It it really depends what it is. you can get albums which all songs sound the same and that's boring but you can also get albums where there's just no uh, journey. It just seems to wander from one style to another aimlessly Um, and that is, that's a difficult one because you don't want an album that's boring, you don't want an album where all the tracks sound the same but you also don't want it to sound like a best of with different bands, you know, like one of these compilation albums that record companies put out. (laughs) You know, yeah the song by journey song by state right. <laughs> you know it's kind of uh it's so it's a it's a tough one that one and um and I think that comes down to having somebody at the helm who's overseeing it um with toto we had three producers <laughs> um and very different too i mean we all worked great together, but um I, I can see the differences in some of the albums, um, you know, from album to album. So it, it's, it's, it's very subtle. And it's very difficult to explain. And you don't always know when you're making the album. It kind of comes a little bit later. Um, so, and that's what happens in the mixing process. Um, a, a lot of that, the, 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 the concept starts to come into place, you know, and the sequencing of the album is also very important.
0: Now, are you
1: happy with the final project? A final, and I mean, oh, absolutely, super happy. In fact, um, in fact, I'm more happy than I thought I would be. Funnily enough,
0: Um,
1: I guess because uh, you know when you're concentrating on that many songs, sometimes it's hard to see the the wood for the trees, you know. Um, But when uh, once we started sequencing. Uh, and sorting out the 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 the, uh, the order in which the songs will go in, um, and also you know I, I I tend to sequence for all formats, so I like to sequence for vinyl, so that's obviously four sides, uh, vinyl sides, um, and then there's sequencing for a CD, and then there's sequencing for digital, uh, you know, all has to kind of tie together. Um, that's when I started to see, hang on a minute, this is <laughs> this is actually pretty cool. Because um, when you're in it that deep, you, you know you, you you have a different head on. It's it's difficult to stand away from it. Um, and with me, I always have to get away from an album for a little bit, and then I listen to it after a few months, and I can listen to it with fresh ears and more as somebody who's listening to it for the first time. And that's when I realise, wow, this 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 is quite an album. It is so uh, yeah. I'm uh, super happy with it. It, it yeah.
0: jams and it's got a good. It's got it's got a little of every. It's, it's cool. It's one of those things where you sit there and you go, you know, it takes you back to like you know, not, not prog rock, but to, it has a lot of good sounds going because there's good guitaring. There's good. There's it's, it's just a good sound and I, I hope people yeah people get into the concept album and get into that kind of music again because it seems like now all people do is they get one tune they go to an iTunes and they buy a song for a buck. And then they don't really get get the whole experience. And that's what makes music so special is the whole album. It's like, as I said, when I went to see Joe Jackson the other night, you know, he played from all the centuries. He's, you know, the four, but, you know, he's been around. And people enjoy that because it adds to a catalog of work. And this whole album is just like a full catalog of work. Plus, when's the last time you saw a double album? I mean, you don't see them anymore.
1: Exactly. I know. I know. It's a shame. It really is a shame. I mean, uh, it's the same with vinyl. I love vinyl. I love, uh, well, I, <laughs> I had a nice vinyl collection <laughs> right. before it all got destroyed. Um, but uh, I, I'll start, you know, buying vinyl again and uh, buying a, a deck. I mean, I grew up with that, but there, there's just something so visceral about it. You know, it's 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 wonderful.
0: There is. So you know what, Simon, I wanna I wanna thank you for taking the time today. This is great. Um, so your website uh, thank you. your website is Sim people, his website is Simon Phillips.com. You can find everything. His gear, if you want to hire him, projects, everything. Go check it out. It's very full of cool stuff. And go listen to some of his music and check out Darwin. It's Darwin I probably Darwin.com makes sense would be taken. You know, because Darwin and all that, but Darwin.is. Yeah, yeah. So, check people, check out uh, Simon. Check out Darwin. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 700 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. And follow me on Twitter. It's at cooper Talk. So, remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys <laughs> next week.